You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome, everybody. I think we're ready to start. We may have a few more people trickling in. I suspect some people are sunning themselves instead of coming to the event, but uh, that's understandable. Anyway, um, good afternoon. I'm Wendy Fenton, and I'm the coordinator of the Humanitarian Practice Network here at ODI. And I'd, um, on behalf of HPN and ALNEP, I'd like to welcome everybody here in the room, as well as the over 300 people who are watching online to, to, to today's event, which is focused on um, an urban future. Uh, but before we proceed, can I just ask you to uh, put your phones on silent. You can still tweet. The hashtag is ThinkUrban. And also hold your questions and comments until we have our Q&A discussion uh, a little bit later. Uh, just over a year ago, we actually held an event here at ODI during which we discussed the challenges and opportunities of Delivering humanitarian, system, uh, delivering humanitarian assistance in urban settings. And I mean, as was noted even then, uh, many humanitarian, uh, humanitarian organizations had already started to adapt uh, to urban contexts, developing new tools, uh, piloting new approaches, and documenting and applying lessons learned. But still, we felt that there was a lack of uh, practical guidance, really, for practitioners, um, especially uh, the guidance they needed to capitalize on the opportunities that cities offer to balance meeting immediate needs with uh, longer-term uh, resilience building. So today I'm really pleased to launch the new ALNAP HPN, Urban Humanitarian Response Good Practice Review, and I think you've all got one on your seats. Uh, and we hope it'll contribute to filling this gap. And this good practice review, or we like to call them GPRs because, of course, we have to have an acronym for everything. Uh, it was authored by David Sanderson, who's sitting here on my right, with the support of an expert advisory group. And GPRs are reference guides for field-based practitioners. And they review operational uh, experience of good practice in key areas, and they provide practical guidance uh, for managers in designing, implementing, and monitoring um, programs. And so in addition to talking about the book today, we also want to focus on some other bigger overarching questions. For example, what challenges do we continue to face when operating in urban areas? And, and how can we better address these? Secondly, how can the humanitarian sector achieve a better balance, as I mentioned earlier, between responding to immediate needs and uh, adding value in the longer term? And then finally, what will urban crises look like in the future? And, and what are the implications for humanitarian response? So, but before introducing our distinguished panel, um, I'd like to show you a short video that we've put together, and it's called 10 Things to Know About Urban Humanitarian Response, and this is based on the Good Practice Review. Cities are complicated places, large, diverse populations living packed together, dynamic systems of trade and infrastructure, and often, extreme inequality. When crisis hit, things can get very difficult very quickly. 
population density, diversity, and intricate urban environments all challenge standard approaches to humanitarian response. So here are 10 things to know about urban humanitarian response. 1. Cities are growing, and growing fast. In around 2007, for the first time, over half the world's population was living in urban areas. Worldwide, cities are growing by 1.5 million people every week. Today, over 4.2 billion people are living in cities, a figure expected to reach 6 billion by 2045. The fastest growth is in Asia and Africa. 2. There has been a sharp rise in crisis affecting cities over the past decade as climate change worsens. Large-scale flooding has become a regular feature of many cities in Asia and Africa, while windstorms wreak havoc in cities across the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Conflicts in urban areas cause widespread destruction and loss of life. Deaths from urban violence in Central America and Sub-Saharan Africa outstrip those killed in armed conflict. Crisis and disasters displace millions, most of whom choose to live as best they can in cities rather than camps. 3. To keep up, humanitarian response needs to urbanize. The tools, approaches and assumptions of traditional aid were developed largely in response to crisis in rural areas. Cities are different. The scale and complexity of any city present great challenges, but also considerable opportunities. Cities offer density, infrastructure, diversity, skills, knowledge, entrepreneurship, innovation, and resources. All attributes aid agencies can and should tap into. 4. Capitalize on what cities have to offer. It makes sense to source goods and skills locally rather than bringing them in from elsewhere. Using local markets help restore urban economies. Cash transfers enable people to prioritize what they need and support local markets and should be the default response option in urban relief and recovery operations. 5. Ensure you have the right skills and be clear about what's possible. In the complexity and interlinked nature of urban life, humanitarian organizations need to work to their strengths and be clear about what they can't do as much as what they can. Aid organizations need to have the right technical skills, and if they don't, they need to find people or partners that do. Cities are full of skilled people. 6. Develop relationships. Technical skills aren't everything. Working in urban areas also means cultivating relationships with the full range of people, from municipal authorities and businesses to urban gangs and neighborhood groups. Effective urban response also requires coordination between aid actors and across sectors. Urban life is not neatly separated into water or hygiene or shelter. Everything is connected. 7. Be flexible. Urban crises require flexible project management tools and contextual understanding. This means seeing cities at one level as a combination of interconnected systems, road, health systems, food pipelines while at the same time recognizing the humanitarian imperative to provide meaningful support to those who need it most. 8. Take time to listen. Affected people routinely say that humanitarian actors do not listen to them enough. Using the right assessment approaches and, just as important, acting on what you find can help ensure that people are heard.
Engagement can be particularly challenging in urban areas where people have varying working schedules and communities that are not necessarily based on geography. 9. Support locally driven recovery. After all, whose city is it? Neighborhood groups, municipal governments, local businesses, and gatekeepers such as gangs will be there long after any humanitarian response has ended. 10. Take the long view. Urban recovery can take years and may be outside the scope of most humanitarian programs. Forced displacement may last generations. In recovery operations, humanitarian organizations must meet immediate needs, but also add value in the long term. Invest in local skills and in strengthening governance structures. Many call this building resilience. Well, I hope you found that uh, interesting. And uh, now that we've set the scene, I just want to introduce our panelists. So let me start with uh, <clears throat> Sikdar Ahmed on my left, who's the Director of Youth and Volunteers with the Bangladesh Red Crescent Society. Um, having worked at the Red Crescent since 1986, Sikdar has a wealth of experience in youth and volunteer development and management urban disaster emergency response, and operations coordination. And prior to his current post, uh, Sector was leading on various humanitarian emergency responses in Albania, Afghanistan, Turkey, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh, of course. Um, Leah Campbell, who's on my far right, is a senior research officer at the Active Learning Network for Accountability and Performance in Humanitarian Action, which we usually refer to as ALNAP and I think you can see why, <laughs> which is hosted also at ODI, uh, like HPN. Um, for the past several years, Leah has led a research project around how humanitarians understand and navigate the complexities of urban contexts. Uh, Leah also facilitates the urban response community of practice and urban webinar series, and she co-leads LNAP's research on leadership, decision-making and coordination. And I have to say that Leah provided key support and input for the GPR uh, during the time that we were working on it. Joining us by video conference from Lebanon is Daniel Delati. Hi, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel is the Deputy Country Director and Head of Programs for CARE International in Lebanon. And he's been working on socio socioeconomic development, youth empowerment, and humanitarian resp response programs in Lebanon for the past 10 years. Prior to that, he worked in the private sector in both Lebanon and the US uh, with the principal financial group, with Wells Fargo, CenturyLink, and others. And Daniel's also a co-founder of the Lebanese Evaluation Society, which promotes good practice in monitoring and evaluation in Lebanon. And then last but not least, on my immediate right, as I mentioned before, is David Sanderson. Uh, David's got over 25 years of experience working across the world in development and emergencies. Uh, from 1998 to 2006, he was head of policy at CARE International UK, and then he moved to be the, the regional manager for Southern and West Africa. And during the following eight years, he was the director of the SENDEP Center at Oxford Brooks, which I'm sure most of you know about. And he also spent a, a year as a full-time visiting professor at Harvard, uh, where he taught an interesting new course on design for urban disaster. 
And finally, in 2016, he was appointed the inaugural Judith Nielsen Chair of Architecture. That's quite a long title at the University of New South Wales in, uh, in Sydney. Um, and David's also edited the 2016 uh, World Disasters Report. So that's, uh, those are our, our speakers today, and we're very lucky to have them. Um, we want to have a bit of a discussion, but I want to first uh, have David, if, David, if you will, tell us a bit more about the Good Practice Review. We've had a bit of an introduction in the video, but tell us a bit more. Cool. I'd love to. Well, firstly, before that, thank you very much for being here. It's a privilege to be part of this story. Thank you to ODI for putting it on. And I'd just like to say beforehand, thank you, Wendy, for actually coming up with this idea to, to have this. This is your brainchild. We tried in our acknowledgements to, to say thank you to an awful lot of people involved in this. You can imagine there were lots and lots, but two in particular are Wendy and Leah, who you reviewed every single page and provided comments and additions and additional information and views. And I really want to say that before saying anything else. So thank you to you two for doing that uh, and all the other people who helped us. The Good Practice Review, the GPR, was actually finished in March 29th. And the idea for that, not launching in March 29th, was to avoid any potential uh, overlap with uh, Brexit because we feared the news <laughs> might be lost. So thank goodness today is a slow news day with nothing at all happening. <laughs> I think as we speak, Theresa May's charging down the mall or something. <laughs> Boris is about to change the world. But, but, uh, but just to say, so the, sorry, to, to, to the question around what, what to say. Well, I, what we tried to do with the 10 takeaways was to think about what are the themes throughout the Good Practice Review. So there's a lot of technical information there. ICRC, in fact, provided a wealth of information relating to WASH. Uh, healthcare, other organizations, um, and I hope I've got them all acknowledged throughout that. So there's a lot of technical stuff, there's stuff on corruption, coordination, uh, just under a quarter of it, well probably over a quarter, relates to sectoral responses, Now I'll, I'll come on to that in a moment because that's a sort of slightly unsatisfactory way of doing it, but I think it reflects where we are right now in 2019. So there's a lot in that, and I don't need to repeat some of the stuff in that, the details, but I'd like to just mention two overarching things that I think maybe build on, I hope, the takeaways. And the first, it sounds completely obvious, but I, I want to develop it a bit, is, is to work with the city. And the city, and I'm not, I'm not going to compare to rural, because once you start comparing, you go down a rabbit hole of where cities end and begin, and of course it's all linked and all those things. But just to say that cities are very complex places, and they're different. And I, I'm tempted to say just to look out the window. If we were to look out the window, see the life, the people, the connectedness, the, the cars, the buses, the 100,000 things going on, and think, well, how do we even begin to engage in that? And I've got just a 30-second anecdote at this time just on that. This is a true story some years ago. A large international NGO, very well known, I won't name it, uh, holding uh, for the first time in a huge city, um, a very big city, uh, what do we know about urban and where are we going to get to and what are we thinking? And it was a four-day uh, workshop with some great people in it on the 10th floor of a of a building with all glass, all glass windows, and you could see the life of the city. Now, this was quite a good event. However, what actually happened once we got our post-it notes out, over the following four days, we filled the view of the city with our words and our language and our understandings and where we were coming from as, you know, very experienced development people, humanitarian, and celebrate that. But the irony was not lost by day four. We couldn't see the city because we had our m and &E and our assessments and our log frames and our blah and our words. And I think the point is to say that we have those things and, you know, where we are now, but a lot of that does not match where the city is and where people are. And I, I don't just think that's not what I think. I think the evidence points that out. So hopefully where we've got it right, the good practice review is connecting to where humanitarianism is now, but actually I would think arguing more to the future. And in 2030, we may well have an entirely different language 
to what we have in 2019. David, that leads me on nicely to the, the next question. I mean, we, as you've said, you know, the GPR documents this growing body of experience, knowledge, evidence, and tools, you know, that, that have been de developed over the past few years. And, and all of these are important and useful. But there's this widespread view that we're, we're still either falling short or maybe not seeing what we need to see in the future. I mean, what, what's missing, if anything, in your view? And what do you think we need to do to ensure that urban humanitarian response is really fit for the future? Hmm. Clearly, we need to read the GPR. But <laughs> in <addition laughs> no, oh, yeah. in addition to that, okay. All right. Well, it is, that, it is that Think Urban. Again, and a lot of people are doing that. It's not like this is a surprise to anybody. There's years of experience, and we've sought to capture. Uh, the Haiti earthquake, in particular, on the naturally triggered disaster front, was was quite a, a surprise. I don't know. I can't think of a better word right now. It's a lot of people working. What do we need to do differently? We probably need to do quite a bit. We think of cities as systems. We, we don't lose the humanitarian imperative, but we think of the connectedness. The last point of our 10 takeaway was to have a long-term think the long-term. That's taking a position. If you're a, a, an organization that's strictly operational, you may profoundly disagree with that. But we would like to say that Ada's investments are important. And our colleague from uh, Lebanon, I don't know if you're going to touch on this, but the intractable, complex nature of forced displacement of refugees and IDPs, where defined by uncertainty, what's going to happen next and where's the future and just how long. What do you do with that money? How do you use it in the best ways? And we pick up just one example of investing in existing infrastructure using aid money for that. But the uncertainty is there. So just on that one, thinking about the bigger picture, cash is a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, I just, very clearly, it's a no-brainer. Stuff like that, using markets, that's a no-brainer. Not bringing things in, using locally sourced skills, knowing anywhere on planet Earth is imperfect and it's taking um, the best fit, the good enough to use that phrase. And my, my final thought also, which of course now fantastically escapes me, I can't remember it, but I think some of those things about engaging in reality, no, that was it, excuse me, what we're not going to do as much as what we can going to do. I mean, the fabulous work from... Alnap over the years and John Mitchell and others talking about the different ways of seeing a comprehensive approach or a consultative approach and certainly in the urban space more of a consultative approach being smaller more strategic supporting not providing are some of the, the big words I think that, that the urban good practice is, is taking us down the road of. Thanks David. I, I don't know if any of the other panelists want to add uh, to that their thoughts on that. If not we can Leah, were you? No? Okay. Well, let's, um, actually, Sikhtar, I'd like to, uh, to go over to you next. Um, I mean, you're, you're, in, you're working with the Bangladesh uh, Red Crescent Society of Volunteers. And uh, looking at your own experience, I mean, how, how do they differ from, how does the role of those volunteers differ from other humanitarians working in urban context or urban response? And what are some of the ongoing challenges that they face? Okay, thank you very much, everybody. Yeah, uh, before your, your reply, uh, I will say how actually, what is the status of Bangladesh Red Crescent Society? Uh, we have the auxiliary to government status in our constitution, and in our uh, Red Crescent uh, uh, constitution, we have mandate to serve in any emergency uh, response uh, independently. So that is actually uh, different mm -hmm. between uh, comparatively with other uh, organizations. Uh, moreover, the government have uh, BDSs, you know, uh, the, totally we run our program activities like our present uh, uh, activities going on, huge flood of uh, uh, flood response program. It's 99% actually implemented uh, by volunteers. 
So in in government, uh, there is a uh, st uh, standard operating procedure we call SOP for uh, Disaster Management Department, and here BDS's role is clearly defined what in uh, what time what we will do. Uh, moreover, there is a dead body management guidelines from the government side, and they are also clearly defined what's Bangladesh Rescue Society role and its volunteer what they will do with this any dead body issues. So it is clearly defined there. And uh, due to the exp uh, expansion of our activities program, government uh, very recently, especially this uh, financial year, uh, agreed actually the, uh, to, uh, to establish four hub in four, three, uh, four major cities, volunteer hub where we will develop 1,200 volunteers, especially for the search and rescue and disaster emergency uh, response. So if you compare actually with other uh, organizations, uh, like uh, humanitarian organization, in fact, they don't have this type of, you know, uh, directly uh, role with, uh, link with the government mechanism system. Uh, system. And especially when this, uh, it, uh, this organization, humanitarian organizations are coming, they are coming with very short time uh, project. That is why actually uh, their program is not sustaining like us, actually. And that is also the government cannot link them, with, uh, you know, empowered or link with the system if there is no long-term uh, commitment there. So there is actually uh, the gap, actually, because people, most of the uh, NGOs or NGOs are coming with very short-term program, say developing 200, 500, 600 volunteers, and two, two years later they are actually uh, not in the system. So it is very difficult, actually. But our system is a bit different. We culture this volunteer. Uh, you know, uh, regularly because the, the most of them are yeah, very young and then uh, drop out and then re retaining. So this issue we maintain. And there are some other organizations like Scouts, uh, National uh, Urban Volunteer. Mostly they are under the government systems. So they are actually coming and these INGOs are actually supporting uh, them as well. Even the first responder, National Fire Service and Civil Defense they are also getting support from the INGOs. But they are not coming clearly with their you know, own team or mandate. They are just coming for the very short time. Yeah. And, and you, see, you mentioned that a lot of your volunteers are quite young. Yeah. And I, I mean, is this, is this a challenge or an, or an opportunity or both? I mean, how? Yeah, yeah thank you. It's both actually. Especially uh, our system, the volunteers will come from the uh, educational institution uh, mainly. And their age limit is 18 to 30. Mm -hmm. So when they are finished, actually, uh, the, their study, they are going back to their work or job, you know. Then we have to, uh, you know, fill up this this uh, volunteer. But it is available because in urban, you saw, you, you see, uh, you're showing this, uh, there is a lot of skilled mm. people. So what we can say these are the volunteer skill. And we are hiring from the same community where they will work, basically. Mm -hmm. So in case, it is a very, very, you know, traffic system is very difficult. So we are hiring from the local community in case of any emergency. They are coming uh, with their establishment in, in, in that uh, local year. So it is, they can come very, we are, we are getting them very uh, real time, in fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, over the years that you've worked with the volunteers, uh, are there any particular lessons that, that you've learned in your experience of working with them? Yeah. Because they are very young com comparatively, uh, you know, the Western culture of volunteering and is uh, in uh, Asian, I, I should say, it is different. 
because uh, I found in Western culture you have the volunteer even after their retirement, many volunteers work for them. Mm -hmm. But in, in our, especially in Bangladesh, we have very uh, young volunteer from the uh, uh, class 12 to, you know, uh, you know, students like this. And they are uh, very, very committed. Uh, you know, they want to face some challenges and, you know, Sometimes they feel it's very heroic work, but our our volunteers not going in the in you know in the very deep of any uh, rescue operation. They do the secondary role after rescuing the people. The volunteers actually helping them for first aid, providing first aid, sending them to hospital or uh, you know uh, uh, other uh, you know relevant uh, uh, part because there are a lot of bystanders. They are really uh, helping the police and other department to stay away, and also, uh, you know, uh, uh, keeping clear the road access for the first responders, you know, coming and going. So they do the secondary role basically because they are not as, uh, assigned for the taking any high risks because well, we have, uh, uh, you know, Geneva-based uh, uh, volunteer insurance systems, but that cover, you know, only for the. Uh, for their safety and security, not uh, you know, uh, to go into the big uh, you know. Right. Uh, okay, that's very interesting. Um, no, thank you very much for that. Um, I, I want to move to to Daniel. Uh, Daniel, I hope you can see and hear us uh, well. I can. Can you guys hear me? Yes, I think so. Can everyone hear? Okay, great. Um, Daniel, I mean, you might want to start off as um, Sikdar did, just telling us a little bit about the the Lebanese context, but it would be really interesting to know what challenges you face in uh, responding to immediate needs, but also in trying to add value in the longer term. Yes, thank you. Um, I think what was interesting in our experience, so in Lebanon we've been doing urban programming for several years now, so in the Syrian crisis we're entering the ninth year, and I think it was, at the beginning everyone started doing your typical sector intervention. So I'm doing wash, uh, I do shelter, uh, health, um, or food security. But I think as more people started to realize, it was funny that no one did at the beginning, that this is an urban crisis. As it, around 80% of refugees in, in the country are in urban areas. Um, there are huge gaps there because in urban areas you have slums, you have, you have protracted, you know, uh, uh, current protracted crisis for, for, for the residents. So you have slum areas, you have poor local people, you have broken systems, you have you know, streets with no lights or, or, or no sewage or water, and then you have refugees come in. So I think that level of complexity, number one, is really hard to prepare for because you're coming in thinking that you can deliver uh, some services with the money that you have and, uh, and, and actually do it successful. It's quite hard in an urban context. And going back to what my colleague was saying is that, you know, the short-term funding doesn't help at all. And you know, I think a, a big problem that we all have is the project cycle. And we tend to get lost in the project cycle because that's what we're looking at. And we don't look at this as something that is not even a, a humanitarian crisis. So sometimes how I look at it as this is, there's no such thing as humanitarian or de development. That's what I would sometimes say as these are people's living conditions. These are people's daily lives. This is what they have to deal with, with every day. I can't come in and give a certain service and expect that not to positively or negative, negatively impact their lives. So how do I plan for that? 
Um, and doing that in a humanitar humanitarian context is hard because you really have to know the context. You have to know the local gangs. You have to know the, diff the different dividers in the community. You have to know everything there is to know to hopefully minimize the, the, the possible harm you do. But that's not very easy when you don't have a lot of time. And going back to the project cycle, you're, you're always in that cycle of, I need to raise more funds, I need to deliver, I need to hire staff, um, now I'm doing my monitoring evaluation, final report, I need more money, I need to raise more funds. That, I think, is, is one of the biggest constraints because you really have to get outside of that and have the balcony view. So would you say that you, that agencies working in cities even more than in, in other types of contexts need to take a, a, pro, a programmatic approach, you know, not a, just a project by project approach, approach but really look at the, the, the whole, the totality and, and try to, and, and so taking that longer view maybe helps with that or, I mean, what, what do you think needs to be done? I mean, I think two things that come to my mind is, first of all, I mean, planning. So I think we're in the, ha in the habit, it's kind of a, uh, an industry habit that when we arrive somewhere, we are all only thinking of the immediate. So I think it's, it's starting when you do your contextual analysis, you're trying to understand what's going on, and you're trying to figure out as an organization where I may be headed, what types of services or gaps I'll, I'll, I'll look at. You, you, you have to have maybe scenarios. So if this goes on for 12 months, what do I do? If it goes on for three years, if it goes on for five years, what, are my, what, what am I planning for? What type of teams or skills will I need? What type, you know, what are some cutoff deadlines? That if, if something happens, do I need to bring in more different types of analysis, different types of plans, and therefore plan for different types of programming? The second thing I think, just to link the two questions together about challenges, is that, you know, myself, because I worked for 10 years in the private sector, private sector, I mean, if you do a bad job in, in, in day one, day two, day three, you're out of business. We are not like that, as we all know. We get funding from donors who hold us accountable. Communities don't hold us accountable. So it takes us sometimes a bit longer to realize we're not doing a good job. And I think what we can do is really heavily invest as an industry to think of how we actually change the tools and the approach that we do work with through to be really more focused on what people want. Because if you're actually handing a box to someone, they're not going to say no. They're going to take the box because it's, or, or the cash card, uh, as David was saying, you know, focus on cash, completely agree. But they're going to take that and you may not find out what they really needed. No, those are really good points. Did you, was, did anybody want to, to add to what Daniel's said? I, I would love to, thank you, Daniel. I just, the, the, the way you paint that picture of that complexity where we have our systems of accountability and project management and cycles, set it with the assumptions that you go, you do it, it you do something good and you leave. And that's not your reality in the intractably complex nature of, I think as you put it, well, daily lives, just people getting on with complexity of, I don't know what it is, jobs or, or housing or, or legal health or whatever it might be. Are you, are you able to adapt your tools in any way that gets the support of those who provide the funding in a, in a meaningful manner? 
So I think I think two things. I mean, I think when we started, you know, really getting um, our hands dirty with urban programming, it forced us to look that. You know, it, it actually forced us to think differently. Um, you had to think of this on a longer-term perspective. We had to do protection differently. We had to think about community inclusion a lot more. We had when we started doing shelter programming you start thinking about longer-term solutions. So I'm helping people improve their shelter conditions, but what, is, what am I doing on the longer term? I mean, are we talking about um, affordable housing policy or, or talking about engaging the private sector on looking at affordable housing solutions? You ask, I mean, I ask myself those questions. I think my challenge is I don't always have the right resources to be able to propose new ideas and influence the donor because I'm caught in that project cycle. Mm -hmm. no, that's very, uh, very interesting. Thank you, Daniel. Um, and we'll, we'll carry on, and we'll, it'll be interesting to hear thoughts from, uh, we've got many experienced people in our audience today, I can see, and so it will be also interesting to hear from them a, a little bit later on. I'm sure they have thoughts on some of these issues. Um, I'd like to turn to Leia now. Um, Leia, I mean, we know that working in urban areas, we've just been talking about this actually, means working with a, a huge range of stakeholders and on a wide range of issues. And they're, you know, that are important in, to crisis-affected people. So how can we improve our responses in cities to account for these complexities? Uh, we've been started to talk about it, but maybe you can add. Thanks, Wendy. Hi, everyone. Um, I want to highlight five things here, uh, and I'll try and do so briefly. And these, as Wendy mentioned, these come from an ongoing piece of research that ALNAP is doing about navigating the complexity of urban areas. And the first one, um, Daniel also just, just brought up, which is about understanding the context. And I just want to emphasize here, when I say context, I don't mean um, the needs, the, the situation, the crisis that's just happened, because understanding that is obviously important, and the ways that we understand that need to be adapted to urban, and we've got a whole chapter on, on needs assessment tools and, and how they can be urbanized in the GPR. But what I mean by context is the politics, the stakeholders, um, the cultural dynamics, how bureaucracy works, what the land rights uh, are in, in that place, the context which existed way before any sort of crisis happened and will continue on and also get shaped by the crisis and shapes the crisis itself. So the understanding the context is really important. The second thing is around working in a more multi-sectoral way. And this, my fellow panelists in the video also has, has kind of uh, mentioned already. People don't experience their needs divided by sector. That's something that we, we say all the time. Uh, we don't have a lot of well-documented examples of how you actually work in a multi-sectoral way. It doesn't always mean that each organization has to become a complete generalist and abandon all technical specialism and, and do everything. It can mean working more collaboratively. Uh, it can mean just thinking outside the box a bit. You know, when you see, um, what's that quote? You know, when you, when you have a hammer, you see every problem as a nail. If you specialize in one particular sector, you only see those issues and you miss you miss the interconnectedness between different problems and the chance to leverage opportunities that there might be to make a bigger impact in WASH because you deal with something in education. You don't realize how inter interconnected everything is, and that's part of understanding the context as well as understanding how all these things inter interconnect. A related 
point would be being flexible and adaptive, partly because things change in a city, which are dynamic places, but also because you can't possibly know everything. Even if you, you know, did a very in-depth, thorough context analysis, you wouldn't capture everything because things are connected in such hidden ways. So recognizing that you won't ever know everything and that something will come up and that something will change, being able to be more flexible and adaptive. And that's why it's great we've got a whole chapter on that in, uh, in the GPR. The fourth one is about building on what already exists. And again, this was already echoed, uh, I think, very well from, from my fellow panelists. There are huge numbers of actors that exist in, in any urban area. And the role of a humanitarian organization isn't, therefore, necessarily indirect implementation. It might be more in enabling and facilitating, bringing people together as part of the um, the research that I'm doing, we, uh, the first case study is about a project in Guatemala where the main function of the INGO the case study is about is in connecting people, connecting academics with communities, with local government, with private sector actors, and being that kind of enabling force. And that's their main you know, real kind of function rather than directly implementing. And I think in, in cities where there are these wealth of local actors, where there are community volunteers and um, academics and private sector actors who have all of these skills and resources. You know, as David said, it's not just not flying in stuff, but also not necessarily flying in skills that, that are there. But we can add something. There is a need for, uh, for humanitarian expertise, but we can be more enabling and building on what exists. And the fifth one is, is the long-term view. And I think, you know, I, I'm not trying to create a kind of debate about what, where humanitarian ends or, or, you know, what my kind of very broad definition of humanitarian might be. But I would say, even if you're just aiming to have a very short-term intervention and you think in a very kind of immediate life-saving way, there are different ways you can do that. You can do it in a way that completely gets in the way and messes up really badly the ongoing development and planning. Or, at best, you can do it in a way that doesn't get in the way of that and at least lets things continue on um, as they were. Or even better, you can do things in the short term which end up having a long-term impact for the positive by aligning with those existing development uh, and planning approaches. And so, again, by going back and understanding what those plans are by understanding the context, by consulting with the local authorities and other uh, actors and stakeholders, we can make sure that even with our short-term humanitarian interventions, they have a long-term impact. And I think the challenge is, when we were putting together the, the GPR and in general, a lot of these things are quite new. They're not the, the mainstream way of working and there's, there's not a lot of documentation and so that's what I'm, I'm trying to do with this new research project is to be able to uh, give practical examples of how actually would you do that? What does it look like? What does your organization look like? What does the funding arrangement for that look like? Uh, and so that'll be out next year. That's great, Leah. Yeah, no, I think it's important to stress that uh, with the GPR, and I think David, you've said this many <coughs> times, is that it, it's it's a, re it's a review of good practice at a particular point in time. Mm. And inevitably, things, which is great, are continuing to, to come out. New research is being done. More things, more tools are being developed. More evidence is being, uh, being presented. And what we try to do in the GPR is to use case study material wherever we can to illustrate uh, what's actually happening on the ground. Uh, and, you know, as always, context, we always say that context is important, but it's really useful to 
unpack it as you have, Leah, in terms of what are the things in an urban environment that we really need to be focusing on, looking at, and understanding. Um, okay, I mean, I'm going to ask you a question now. Is LNAP's focal point for urban issues? And as the convener of the urban uh, response community of practice, I mean, you, you must have some insight into how well the sector is prepared um, to respond in urban areas. So wh what are the prospects for humanitarians to um, be able to respond effectively to future urban crises from your perspective? Well, I'll start with the strengths. Um, you know, ALNEP started working on urban issues really in, in 2012. We had a, an earlier lessons paper, but in 2012 we had a, an annual meeting about urban and we also published a lessons paper, which David co-wrote at the time, um, about urban. And so if we, you know, look from then until now, you know, almost a decade, it's, there's a, been a lot of change and there's a lot more voices, um, there's a lot more people working on urban issues, convening around uh, these issues, uh, trying new things and documenting them. And that's why we you know, had the material to, to put together the, the GPR at this point. And so I think that's, that's good, that's great, you know, getting more people consciously recognizing that there are urban disasters and that there's learning to share, because urban isn't new, of course, we've been responding to disasters in cities for decades, but the uh, intentional kind of um, recognition of, of what's different about urban and that we can collect urban examples together and share them, share the learning and best practice is more new. Lots of advocacy as well. You know, I think the part of the um, the work that the Global Alliance for Urban Crises, which helped to fund the, the the GPR and is doing a lot of important work, bringing together built environment professionals and local authorities with humanitarians, is a message of advocacy to try and get urban issues on, on the uh, the mind of you know the, those much more senior uh, than than us, thinking about urban and realizing that it's different. So I think. You know, with all of the institutional commitments and, and new networks and bringing people together around urban, that there's a lot going on that's, uh, that's really positive. I think where we still need to kind of, you know, push a few things, one is there are still urban skeptics. There are people who respond when we say, you know, this is something about urban disasters that say, well, yes, you should need all of these things are applicable anywhere. You need to understand the context wherever you are. There's nothing special about urban it's just you know doing good humanitarian work, uh, and that that's often true. Although the the kind of um, density that we have in urban and the number of different actors and problems kind of shines a really big spotlight on the existing problems and things that we're still trying to work out everywhere, like coordination and uh, really understanding the needs. So we have to kind of you know share the GPR with our urban skeptic colleagues uh, to show them what's uh, what 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 might be different about urban, and. There's a, been a lot of pilots, especially over the past couple of years, with really big donors, you know, getting on the urban bandwagon and funding a lot of really innovative tools and approaches that get um, developed and, and tried. Um, we need to be able to continue using those and scale those up. Um, and I think one of the real challenges in the past few years around kind of all the donor interest in urban is that, is that it's been a lot of focus around developing or doing discrete pieces of research or trying new tools and then the funding for that is over and then what happens and do those tools get actually used forevermore by organizations. So there's a lot more to do to, to um, scale up the use of these new things and so what, with the GPR hopefully we've captured what they are so that they can be more widely shared. 
Um, and the last thing is there, you know, there are some issues around which it was really hard to gather good practice for the GPR. <laughs> um, and so hopefully these words, you know, like housing, land, and property, and protection won't make us all, <laughs> those of us who had to, you know, try and hunt and, and find examples to share won't make us cry too much. But there are these issues where we don't know enough yet because there haven't, not necessarily that there isn't work that hasn't been well documented or shared, these lessons around these topics. So there, there still is work to be done uh, to try new things. We know a lot in some of these cases about what doesn't work, and so we still need to keep on uh, trying to find some examples of, of what might. Um, and so I don't know if that ends on a, on a hopeful or, or positive <laughs> note, but... Um, there yeah, we go. I, I, th I think it is positive, I, but I think it is it's good that you've highlighted um, the difficulty in finding that case study material, especially in, in some areas and how, I mean, as HPN, we're always trying to get people to document their experiences and to also document those things that don't work and why. And it's very difficult to get people to do that for obvious reasons. Um, David, yeah. Yeah, can, can I yeah, just do, a, a, a little 30 mm. seconds to that? And I, I couldn't agree more with, that, with everything you said. Just two thoughts. So take if a city has been destroyed, a Mosul or a somewhere else, uh, then it's organizations like ICRC and others, and it's an urban thing, and there's destruction, and there's that. That's a, there's a, I think the word clarity seems inappropriate. However, there is a something. And I was just thinking as you were talking, uh, Leia, the, take a cyclone pan that hit Vanuatu in the Pacific. Uh, and again, not wrongly, agencies who may be based in the city charge off and do stuff. Of course, who would say that's wrong? And at the same time, so avoiding the but here, and at the same time, there may be communities, in fact, there were neighbours in Port Villa needing uh, support. Also, uh, after the Nepal earthquakes, uh, of course, there were two of them, uh, where agencies, not wrongly, find those who are often left out because there's a whole narrative, of course, of, of far-flung, you know, remote communities never receiving any support. So, and at the same time, there may be urban areas where more hidden, where a lot of the collapse of buildings was inside buildings or other things or renters who are now homeless. So it's a tension. And of course, at the end, there will be an issue there of limited donor funds. Uh, and what do you do with what you have? And there's a best fit conversation, as with every single response. And we know we're overwhelmed and under-resourced, and that's part of the context. I'm just making an observation that rightly in finding remote communities, there's also a tension with neighborhoods who might be literally next door. Mm -mm. Yeah, the density, proximity, and, and also, as you say, the difficulty of actually seeing the city as, mm. as it is, seeing the reality on the ground are, are issues. Um, very soon, we want to open the floor to our audience, both here in the room and online, for questions, comments, discussion with the panel. But I, I've got one last question that I want to direct to all of our panelists, really. And, and this is the, the big one, I think, which is, you know, what, is, what will the future actually look like for humanitarians responding to urban crises? What sort of threats are we facing? Um, what sorts of things do we need to be able to do? Um, what does the future actually look like? What sort of future crises are we going to face? So, I, Daniel, I don't know if, uh, if you'd like to lead off. Yeah, sure. I think I would want to bring... Um, one more dynamic into this, which are, you know, the localization dynamic of local partners or existing partners in each country. And I think, I mean, uh, I mean, Bangladesh is probably one of the best examples in the world in terms of strong local civil society. Um, Lebanon is another one. So, I mean, for a country that has around four or five million people, there's around 10,000 registered NGOs. That's a huge number. Yeah. 
So I think just one thought that's on my mind, there's a ton of things to, to talk about in terms of localization, but one thing on my mind is if, we were, if there's a backdoor, if we can cut some of the time, so if we're behind, if that's what we're, that's how we're diagnosing ourselves, we're behind and we need to catch up. I think building, so what I mean, like the example of what's happening right now is, is you know, the production of knowledge, or what, what David did with this report is putting some knowledge out there. If that could be done locally, with local partners, if we could support local think tanks, or establish local think tanks, to produce that knowledge locally, that will help really push this uh, into the future a bit faster. Thanks, Daniel. That's a really good uh, good point. Sector, do you want to add anything? Yeah, actually, uh, I will repeat uh, the, what she was telling. The, the co coordination between, you know, the, the uh, partners, the donors, and uh, uh, there should be a – in government system, we call – we say a Sustainable Development Goal, SDG. There is clearly also some – uh, some area uh, they suggest to develop, you know, urban uh, uh, urban uh, response mechanism uh, with with the coordination with all partners. So again, uh, the, the short time uh, programs actually uh, 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 alternative way we can say sometimes it is misuse of fund, you know. Uh, so you are developing some project for the for, for particular area uh, for the short time. And many of the humanitarian organizations, they are doing somebody doing here, somebody there, somebody there, but they, this not is a combined effort. So that is why, end of the day, when they are living with this uh, the project, it, it is going back to the same uh, point. So there should be a good coordination system with the government mechanism, support, and commitment of the government, and as well as, as well uh, the partners, the donors, or organizations, humanitarian, then it will, uh, it will be a sustainable uh, you know, system or sustainable uh, procedure. Thanks very much, Sikhtar. Um, Leah? I think, I mean, just to, to say something different than, than I've already said, because I already talked about, you know, how well we're, we're uh, potentially able to cope. I think, you know, in, in the future, there are, um, there are crises that blur the lines that made it make it harder for us to recognize them as crises there are things like urban violence uh, climate induced you know displacement um, ongoing systemic vulnerabilities that exist in places um, that hit a crisis point but aren't necessarily the scale of you know mm -hmm. the Haiti or Nepal earthquake um, and I think that they, you know, they really challenge the humanitarian sector, and they particularly do in urban, where we have so many vulnerable people already uh, living, and where vulnerabilities can be hidden, as you, uh, you know, as you as you talked about. So I think that's an area where, uh, in terms of how, you know, how what what sort of things should we be preparing for? We need to um, question. Uh, as well as thinking about, you know, our role as a potential enabler or facilitator rather than implementer and the need to support existing local actors and uh, expertise. Also think about, you know, is there a role for the humanitarian sector in, in um, smaller crises, in hidden crises, uh, and, uh, and, and how do we function in that? Because it's not flying in and swooping in mm. with thousands of organizations. So what does it look like? I think this issue about everyday crises, uh, you know, has been highlighted actually mm -hmm. in the 
in previous world disasters reports too, because that that is actually what people. My understanding is that's what people are most worried about. I mean, the big crises are are incredibly uh, terrible and and important too. But er, er, people's experience of it is the it's the everyday crises that they have the most difficulty dealing with and recovering from. David. And, and just on that, the addition of violence as a humanitarian issue, which maybe a few years ago we wouldn't be discussing, but way more now, of course. Just just, just putting down some thoughts with the caveat, of course, of beware all predictions that almost yeah. none <laughs> come to be true. But there are some things that, that we know are happening. I mean, we know climate change is happening. Heat is a huge issue, a huge issue. Not just here, but if you have no AC and it's 49 degrees and you're in an informal settlement, heat is a, a threat to your very life. Um, of course, conflict. One would hope that will never you know, they will be swept away, but, but there will almost certainly be that. Of course, disasters, um, violence, as we mentioned. Of course, changing cityscapes. I mean, if you listen to people talking about AI and the way things, and artificial intelligence, and the changes that are about to happen in the next 20 years, like, like way more of machine learning, the internet of things, all other stuff which will profoundly shape our worlds, and especially urban worlds, that's a, that's a whole context uh, which, I mean, who knows what's going to happen. Um, if you think of, people now talk about a post-globalization world with the rise of right wing and uh, Trump and in the next half an hour our new, uh, <laughs> our new prime minister or whatever it might be. But, but a whole shift is certainly in Europe as well, but also where I live in Australia and elsewhere. You know, there are political shifts in the sort of neo-colonial, well, neo you know, whole consensus around liberal stuff shifting and changing. We're in, a, we're in a changing world in many ways. Of course it's constant change, but a lot of the assumptions which I think development are based on are changing. Even that word development, I mean, one of the, one of the great achievements in the last few decades, as we know, has been the, the drop of poverty, mostly through growth of China, actually, and middle class and stuff like that. So the whole assumption of a development organization with a portfolio of emergency and development, hmm, you know, in 20 years' time, it's, it's going to be different, uh, for, for good reasons, by the way, uh, some might say. So where does that leave us in our immediate questions? Uh, smaller, more strategic, consultative, no assumption that we're going to go and fix it, uh, that may have been the case before, um, and maybe just total blur, total blur between what's currently called the nexus, of course, of development and humanitarianism. It's not there. Supporting governments. We're seeing governments saying, no, you can't come into our country. Actually, we will deal with our disaster. Well, that actually, you might say, is a very good thing, although it can be a bad thing if it's for political reason of exclusion. But, but, but more of a blur, less of a thing that your language, Daniel, talking about. We come with our clusters, and actually it doesn't fit real life, as, as you said as well there. So... Clusters have been good. The evidence is it's been good and better than what was before. That's a, a matter of record. But not for urban areas. IRC and others are saying no. So a shift, a more, if you like, a demand-led approach. And area-based approaches are part of that conversation right now that especially excite the shelter cluster and others for, for good reason. So a lot of shift and way more. But for sure, we can't do business as usual. I think that's the point. Thanks very much. Um, okay. Well, we're, I'd, I'd like to open the floor now. First... Um, Taking questions, I'll take them in batches of about three or four from people in the room. And I've got a few questions here from our online audience as well. So any questions or comments, if you could raise your hand. We've got a microphone, I think, that we'll be taking round. And if you could identify yourself uh, before you speak, that would be great. Uh, yes, let's start here. Thanks. Hi, my name's Francesca. I used to work in the humanitarian sector and now I'm an urban planner. So I was just curious to hear whether you found any examples of good practice of humanitarian responses taking the lessons learned 
going to city planning departments and kind of making sure that they're applied? And if so, were they applied? <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Yes, and also if you want to direct your question to any particular speaker or it's to the panelists in general. We've got another one here in the front. Thank you very much. My name is Marcus Geiser. I work for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Maybe just one general question, yes, and maybe more for David, yes, and Leah, yes. When do you think is a city a city? Is the current conversation on urban humanitarian action focused on the heavyweights, the Kinshasas of this world? Are we also, all your thinking, does it also apply to the middleweights, the Gomas of this world? Again, when is a city a city? And looking a little bit into the future, do you actually foresee also, everybody talks about the ever-growing growth of cities. Do you also foresee collapse of cities, that certain systems simply cannot work anymore because the infrastructure that is needed to actually make those big big cities work? At one moment, it will cost too much money for all kinds of reasons. Will you, will you foresee a collapse of cities? Not because of war, but because just because, of, because cities are, are getting too big. Second point, maybe for our colleague from the Bangladesh Red Crescent, yes, being ICSC, I'm very happy to see someone from Bangladesh Red Crescent. Uh, your relation, your experience, how do international organizations interact with local urban authorities? Thank you. Thanks, Marcus. One more for this round? Uh, yes, we've got one at the far back and then we'll take you on the next round. Go ahead once you get the microphone. <laughs> Hi, um, Dahlia Aranki, the, um, I come from the cluster, uh, housing, land, property, area of responsibility. Um, and first I'd like to say very happy to work with the research in documenting and finding good examples because I think we do have some good practice. So very happy to work with ALNAP if that's useful in terms of identifying those um, good practices and working together to see how best to document. Um, I wanted to ask the panel, we are overwhelming our colleagues in, in various countries with lots of uh, guidelines and guidance and ways of doing things. How do you think we can really be practical in terms of uh, taking these kind, this kind of work to the level of uh, the people doing the work in every day, whether that's um, local or international actors? Um, and it's very hard, bearing in mind, it's very hard to work outside of the established structure. And there is little incentive to think out of the box. And often uh, when people are thinking out of the box, it's pushed into you know, creating an app or, or, or innovation that's, that's not really looking at quality and working together. So how do you suggest we can come together and let's use the system, we are the system in many ways, uh, in terms of bringing this off the page and actually helping our colleagues that are having to uh, respond to the crises? Thank you. Great, let's start with those three, and uh, maybe we'll start with, with David and, and Le uh, Leah, and then others can also chip in. Three great questions, thank you very much. Uh, Francesca, just on the urban planning, when I trained as an architect, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's around, there's a whole world of urban planning and built environments, and urban theory going back 100 years, and we, we, we touch on the edge of that in our introductory section. Uh, some examples of good urban planning. Uh, IRC in particular has been doing quite a lot in uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, Samia Saliba particularly, who I think is an urban planner, I'm pretty sure that's the case. 
um, working and engaging and taking that urban planning because you know that's often the missing piece hey the number of cities you go to there are no urban planners none at all because there's no money no funding no interest uh, and it's on the edge of the radar the port villa vanuatu already mentioned no planners what are you going to do in a place where there's rapid urbanization or planners in uh, shimla in northern india just a few years ago uh, none of whom have been trained in seismic engineering and yet earthquakes it's the himalayas so there's a whole gap there and a weakness i mean it's not like it works in many countries of the world, but we did try and find good examples. So thank you for saying that. Bringing that whole existing urban thinking that's been around forever to a humanitarian sector. Maybe I could jump to you then, Dahlia, thirdly, saying that about, about making it fit. And I don't know whether we got it right or not, so I'm not going to try and sell this. But, but we did, what we did try to do is meet, meet it where people are right now. Hence why so much is on sectors. You know what, if you were to write this from first principles, you wouldn't even mention sectors, you know. And I really take your point about, you know, thinking out about creativity. Maybe that's the reason why innovation has become a word the last few years. And I know, I know some people push back against that, the Humanitarian Innovation Fund or the others that exist, which are incentivizing creativity through funding. Uh, maybe that's something, but, but I completely take your point that there are very little incentives to, for instance, not use a log frame. Uh, whereas, you know, many people are doing it through the adaptive management work of of a number of people. Uh, and thirdly of yours, when's a city a city, Marcus? We, we could speak all day in definitions. I, I'm guessing you're not meaning that. Uh, a friend of mine said a few years ago, well, you know, if a, de if a definition is density, uh, where you use the cash economy and most people aren't farmers, that's a good definition for a cruiser ship. <laughs> I, and I don't say that just pithily, but we sought to avoid a little bit around definitions. That said, I mean, the, 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 the big or the small cities, Wendy made the point at the get-go, that it's often about those hidden hidden crises that's the issue. So we, in, in the GPR, there's a little bit on that, but then trying to sidestep it a little bit, if you find it useful for non-urban, good. I mean, who's to say that's bad, obviously, in any way? Leah, do you want to add? Um, on an example of urban planning, I would highlight the work that UN Habitat is doing in Lebanon. Um, they've got some things called uh, city profiles, which draw on an urban planner's toolkit. And they've also for a long time been doing capacity building of municipalities before uh, the, the, the Syri Syrian civil war, uh, which get, gave them really good relationships to build on w when they started working with city, um, city officials to put together these urban profiles. So it's quite interesting and it's cited as an example in the, in the GPR. Um, on cities and definitions, I, I try not to define certain things like urban or uh, systems um, or complexity because uh, we can get lost in the kind of buzzword jargon. There is a definition that I've used in a paper called Stepping Back, which is in the, the hallway, which is more about kind of, you know, if it's sort of more like a market economy and if it's sort of like this and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I think the important thing is to emphasize, which you kind of were getting at, the the, the growth in, in the world in urban is in uh, middle cities or in smaller cities. That's where the, the, the major growth is happening. So in terms of, you know, where um, future crises will be, they're quite likely to be in, in smaller and medium-sized cities. And so that's something we need to take account of and not have only examples that that are learning from, you know, the, the really big ones and have examples that are learning from those. Um, and then on the point about, about um, 
kind of sharing this with people and, and get it thinking outside of the box. On the sharing, I think the good thing about the GPR is that <clears throat> it is a, it's a resource guide. It's not a, a narrative, you know, read it cover to cover sort of uh, book. It is a, a reference uh, piece. So if you uh, have a colleague who is a, a WASH person, you can suggest they read the WASH chapter and if that gets them interested, they can read some other ones and we do direct one to uh, to other chapters. You know, if you're about to do a, a needs assessment, you can read the chapter just on that to brush up. They're all quite short and brief. The point is to direct people to resources and learning documents that already exist rather than reinventing the wheel. <clears throat> so it's quite handy in that sort of thing. It's easier to um, to share, I think, than some of our, uh, some other publications. And then in terms of thinking outside the box, this is something that I've been trying to work into the um, urban complexity research that I've been doing and one interesting uh, thing that I'm exploring and following and will be writing about um, next year is um, this whole world of what's called systems thinking tools um, which I've been looking a lot at how these tools are used in the education sector in the US where they teach children from kindergarten how to how to think outside the box, how to realize that you're coming from a certain perspective, how to uh, map things out and look at feedback loops to identify uh, how things are connected. And they have a lot of very basic, as I say, they're, they're teaching this in, in elementary schools. Um, and uh, there's some interesting work done outside the, the humanitarian sector and that. So hopefully that's something that I, I'd have a better answer for once I've uh, finished fully looking into that. But I think there are potentials for, uh, for how to do that, looking at sectors like education or, um, or business where um, they might be a bit ahead of us. Uh. Thanks. And before, uh, David, I think you had something you wanted to add. Before I, I let you do that, just to say, with the GPR, um, it is a reference material, but it's also designed to make, uh, try to make you think. Mm -hmm. So it, it sort of talks about what are the issues that you need to consider, that you need to think about. Not so much, this is how you do something, step one, two, three, four. But really, these are things that you need to consider and look at, think about, before you actually make your decision or in the process of developing your program. And we think that's a really useful way to, to go about doing things because it doesn't mean that you're all going to, everyone who uses it is going to come up with the same answer. It means that it's going to make you think about those critical questions. David. Oh, thank you. So with apologies, Marcus, your second question about city collapse, I had a fascinating thought. I mean, history is full of cities that have recovered, of course, after conflict. We're, sitting, we're in London right now, which was largely bombed and destroyed widely in, in World War II. Whole cities such as Berlin or Coventry, which became the playground for the urban planners afterwards, unfortunately, at a time of uh, modernism, some might say. Uh, so there are cities that have recovered. There's so much investments. There's so many things. But then there have been, in history, cities that have been abandoned in history through lack of water. Uh, Cape Town recently, of course, ran out of water. Where I live in New South Wales, which has protracted drought, a small town called Walgett has no water whatsoever, and water is brought in in water bottles and trucks. And that may go on for a very long time. But whether people then abandon cities, who knows? Probably not. There's so much investment that's gone on. But who knows? Maybe it will happen. Thanks, David. Yeah. Yes, Marcos. 
Uh, your basically your question was how this other organization work with us, uh, yeah, th that system, yeah. Yes, I mean also yeah. we. I mean I understand you're working for the Bangladesh, Bangladesh Red Crescent. Yes, I'm probably also interested in local authorities. I suppose yeah. if you also engage with local authorities from your own experience, how do international organizations engage with local authorities or with or with your society? Yes, doesn't really yeah. Okay. I mean we we have to, uh, two types of actually organizations supporting us. One is our movement partners. It's mean ICRC, IFRC, and different national societies like uh, American, British, German, they are working as well. So, and if you see when it is uh, the fund coming from uh, the uh, European Union, any fund, uh, they cannot directly invest in our system. They have to come through the, any European other organization like uh, uh, British Red Cross or uh, German Red Cross. So, and then we have our national strategic plan. So in national, through this, uh, they are normally uh, funding the, uh, to implement our, fulfill the strategic plan, and then we, uh, it is coming to national headquarters. Then in the root level, we have actually our more partners, like especially the municipal, uh, local municipalities, our local government. Uh, so in case of, uh, in case of one program, like uh, it is basically ICSC supported program, we call it first aid in other situation of violence. We have a lot of violence issues, especially political violence in our country. So this is actually uh, fun maybe from, from the ICFC, but it's totally actually a national society system it is we are implementing. We have teams in different districts, especially the big cities, and when, whenever any uh, you know, crisis coming, we are deploying our volunteer. And we have very good connection with the police department and government system because, you know, this, this kind of uh, violent situation, uh, if you don't have a good uh, connection with the uh, local authorities, it is very dif difficult for our volunteers. So that is why we have, uh, you know, regularly we have to organize uh, some kind of, uh, you know, coordination meeting with not only the authorities or even with the local political parties say maybe they are not facing each other in the in the you know in the normal time but they are coming in for any discussion of red cousin with everybody is coming including the journalists so we do the local meeting with all the partners stakeholders that in case of any uh, uh, crisis if we are volunteer deploy please don't hurt them like this way and in other program like uh, development programs say other national society also supporting uh, you know uh, it's called uh, earthquake emergency response program so then we, we use our local, uh, you know, uh, we call uh, uh, sub-district or uh, level uh, volunteers from the community. So this is how actually we have the volunteer mechanism uh, system and using the uh, government uh, urban volunteer because uh, they have also very good volunteer system, but, you know, not sustainable. But now we are recruiting them in our system and giving our identity because when you will get uh, our identity, you will be, you know, uh, uh, with the system of the uh, insurance. That lot of issues. So this is actually we have very good coordination with the uh, partners and uh, local government. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel. Was there anything that you wanted to add on any of the questions? Yeah, quick one um, to the gentleman from ICRC for, for our programming. I mean, one of the cities we work in is uh, around half a million in population. So. Um, that and even smaller. And secondly, uh, quick, uh, my regards to Dahlia, long time no see, please be in touch. And just to answer your question, Dahlia, and to try and answer your question actually, um, 
Yes, we should be practical, but I think what I was trying to say is how do we link this discussion to the discussion around localization, the discussion around the nexus? It's all interlinked, and it's all the same thing. It's how are, how are we going to transform this industry? How are we going to change, and how are we going to do it differently? This is just one of the chapter in that, in that discussion. So I don't know if that answers how to be practical, but into furthering that discussion, it's, it's really... It's it's uh, behavior change, isn't it? isn't it? I mean, it's like what we attempt to do in the work we do. It's it's on ourselves. We need to, to change the way we behave, the way we act, plan, and do all of this. Thanks, Thanks Daniel. No, very good point too. And some of those discussions are taking place. I mean, I mentioned this only because I've been working on it for a few months now. Uh, the grand bargain, but at least there are those different strands of work that are taking place, but um, around localization, the nexus, and other things, where some of those discussions are coming together in the way that you fund uh, urban programs through a number of different sources and getting organizations like the World Bank to come in uh, and fund one part of it, whereas humanitarians are doing another part, but there's a, a whole that we're talking about, whole as in W-H-O-L-E as, as opposed to the other type. So I think those are, those are, that's a really good uh, area, or, or gap anyway, because urban isn't often mentioned in those discussions, I have to say. Um, okay, thank you very much. I've got a few questions from the online audience, and I'll go back to those of you who had your hands up earlier here. Um, the first one comes from uh, Saeed Zanin, who works with aid organizations in Gaza. Urbanizing humanitarian response requires that aid agencies engage with the informal sector in developing cities. How can aid agencies legitimately conduct such activities without causing harm? For example, harming informal businesses by exposing them to government attention. So that's one question, uh, and quite a difficult one, I think. Um, shall, I do, or shall I do two or three of these? I've got three, actually, at the moment. The second one is from Alain Kerrigot, who's a humanitarian advisor with Oxfam. What kind of value do traditional, in quotation marks, humanitarian actors add in a place where there are so many resources, actors, formal, informal, public, private, CSO, governance bodies, and mechanisms already working? So what's the added value of traditional humanitarian actors. I suppose this means in urban areas. Um, and finally, uh, this one is from Patrick Culver, who's with the American Red Cross, formerly with MSF. I've seen organizations speak a lot about minimum thresholds of affected people to justify a response. However, in urban areas, this can be less clear due to the systematic issues which already take place. Are there key indicators which differ in an urban response to decide how and when to intervene? And uh, I can, as they're written down, I can read any of those over again if you, if you didn't get them. Um, I don't know, does anybody want to volunteer to try to address any of those? Uh, Daniel? <laughs> Should I put sure. you on the spot? Sure. Um, Yes, shout out to Saeed from Gaza. Um, harm. Uh, that is my favorite topic. And I think, I think we do a lot of harm. And we, we, 
of course not intentionally, but but I mean, yes, uh, we all have our conflict sensitivity and, and cultural sensitivity measures, tools, analysis is in place, but I, th I think even as the harder we try, we, we can't or don't see everything. Um, what can we do to, re to reduce that harm? I mean, for the, the three questions, the Saeed question, Alan and Patrick, minimum thresholds, and, and what justifying our presence as INGOs, for me, I always see it as our, what's the future of, of INGOs or international aid? It has to be locally led. It has to be aligned with people's cultures, with people's values, with how they define their futures. I think, I think whoever of these INGOs can can rush to that agenda will, will be the most successful in, in the coming twenty years. So that's my answer to all, actually all three questions. Daniel, um, Sikhar, did you know? No, nothing. Uh, Leah, David. Um, I've written down the questions. I try and write down some notes about what to say. I don't have much on, on that part. Um, I think in terms of what, what is the value of, of uh, actors in a place where everything is already there, well, there, there might not be an added value. So I, you know, I think that it's entirely possible that a, a country could have a crisis and be able to completely, you know, um, uh, handle it and not require international support. Um, but I think there are also things, uh, you know, especially when when crises are so um, so massive and overwhelming for a place that then everyone who's already there becomes an affected person in a way themselves, whether they might have you know lost family or or uh, had their their home uh, uh, destroyed or what have you. Um, so you know, I think there are things, whether it be. Um, technical resources or, or advocacy strengths or, or even uh, making it easier to get funding through because there's existing relationships with international actors. There's also something for, you know, lessons learning. And I think we, we definitely don't want to suggest that um, that things that work perfectly one place can be completely transported and plopped down somewhere else and work fine. That's not it at all. But there is value in learning from one context to the next in trying something in this place and bringing it somewhere else. Uh, and, and so there is a value in, in maintaining kind of those linkages around the world rather than just kind of having everyone, you know, stay in, in, um, uh, in one place. But I think, you know, we have to be more... Um, critical and, and humble isn't the right word, but, but question, you know, are, is there an added value here? Uh, and that, that might be no. Um, and so that, you know, I can't say exactly what the, the value might be, but in a place like Indonesia, you know, where they said, you know, we've got it, thank you. You know, maybe, you know, maybe they do. Um, and we just have to be there to um, potentially help as needed. And that might be remote. You know, a lot of the things that we can do might not involve flying over there, but might involve, um, you know, remote support. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think that's important. I think the functions like that you mentioned earlier and others like mentoring, supporting, connecting, those are often undervalued um, functions but really important ones. And they can be very much in the background and be at the request of, of either partners or, or affected um, organizations or people in the field. But we often don't think of that first. We think of what things can we supply, what can we actually do. 
So I think that's an important one. David? Yes, just briefly, because I think it's been said. I, I like the word humility, by the way. I, I think that's a nice word to introduce into this. Um, I, I, I may be wronger with Alain's thing, but I wonder if traditional is a euphemism for expatriate. Uh, I think that's, that scenery is changing, especially in urban areas for obvious reasons. But I think that's changing also as well. An expatriate is African and Asian and Latin American and other. It's not the, if traditional means white people from Europe going somewhere, I think it's a different landscape now. And it, could, it can always be better, <laughs> uh, but I could be quite wrong in, in interpreting that question. Saeed, your, your point about in Gaza, I have no answer for that, about informal sector engagement, because that's the immediate conundrum we all know about. You're not allowed to work because government says you're informal, and yet you might be the most vulnerable, and it's squaring that circle. Uh, some people just do it anyway, of course, and just get on with it, because that's the reality of an intractably complicated area. And very briefly, finally, because it's already been touched on, Patrick, relating to thresholds and indicators, of course, Sphere is something that springs to mind. Uh, the Sphere project around minimum standards, uh, that's, uh, that was given a sort of urban layering in its most recent incarnation. A lot of work went into that. And, uh, well, Sphere right now is actually looking for a, for a rewrite of its, urban, of its urban thinking that Ben Mountfield did some years ago. So there is genuine effort relating to that and, and how to get that right. But, but just to add to that, of course, as we all know, minimum standards, if that's a race to the bottom, then of course that's a problem. And yet, you know, when used correctly, they're very helpful. Thanks, David. Okay, let, let's uh, take more questions from the audience here. And I've got one, another interesting one online. Uh, there was someone who had their hand up. Did you still want to? Yes, go ahead. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for the nice presentation and lots of information. I would like to th uh, to second the point of Daniel's to support local um, think tanks to because we, I'm, I'm, my name is George. I'm working in Syria with many organizations on uh, urbanism and rebuilding, reconstruction and stuff. So um, my question, I'm, I'm sorry if it's a little bit far. I would like, I'm really interested to hear some of your recommendations to us. You know, it's very limited, the places that we can share with people and international experiences like you. We have very small and limited experience based on the stuff that we have access to. So whatever recommendations, stuff that we should be working on, things that we should be doing to help people working outside to, to support us also. So any recommendations from you would be highly appreciated. Thank you so much. Thank you. Others? Um, that's over here, Sam. This, yeah. Hi, um, yeah, Sam Carpenter, DFID. I, I, I just wanted to share a couple of very quick examples because I think sometimes it can get a bit abstract of, of how we're trying to put it into practice. I think, Yemen's one really good example, the, the breakdown of the urban system. So Sana Sewer Network broke down 10 days after you had the cholera outbreak um, two summers ago. And actually, a lot of it was with the split of the central banks. How do we get incentives paid for the local workers? And that was what a bit it, it came through the World Bank crisis finance, some of that that went to UNICEF. We could actually get people paid for some of the solid mm -hmm. waste, for some of the sanitation municipal workers. So again, like everything you're saying, you're working on supporting the urban systems that are there. Um, and then Libya, an example recently, the offensive on Tripoli. One of the things we did in, in funding WHO um, was looking more at basically their emergency medical teams. How do you actually um, sort of augment existing public health emergency trauma systems? So basically just funding them to contract a surgeon, an anesthetist, um, a nurse that would then go in and get supplies into the pre-existing system, and you've got skilled health workforce already in country. So it's quite different to the old sort of model um, of what we're doing. So just because sometimes people say, when we say, 
you know, interconnected, complex urban system, people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> what are you actually doing differently? So I think there are examples of where we are, you know, changing how we're working. Thanks for that, Sam. Yeah, Harriet. Hi, Harriet Purchase from Redar, and uh, well done, David. That was a, a monster job that you've done getting through this. Um, I, yeah, I have a question. So we're talking about humanitarian preparedness and, and um, looking at uh, what will look like in 20 years' time because this is all shifting. So uh, a question for the panel is, um, what should we be investing in ourselves to ensure that we actually meet the requirements in 20 years' time? So they always say at school at the moment, the kids that we're teaching... <laughs> are being prepared for jobs that we actually that don't exist at the moment. So we should think of it in the same way that the humanitarian system at the moment, the capacity building that we're doing within our own system, we should be building for capacity for 20 years' time. Where do we need to build that capacity? Thank you. I think we've got three now. I've got one online that I'd like to, to read out. It's quite a different one, but I think quite an interesting one too. And then we'll uh, go back to our panel. Does the panel see any big differences or particular challenges for humanitarian organizations coordinating with security forces in large urban areas during conflicts. And this is from Paul Shuri, who is a civil advisor working for NATO. So any big differences or particular challenges for humanitarians coordinating with security forces in large urban areas during conflict? Right, well, let's go back to our panel. Um, let me start down at this end again. Uh, Daniel, is there anything that any of the, out of any of those, uh, that wide range of questions you'd like to comment on? Um, yeah, I would go for Harriet's question on what we need to learn in the next 20 years. I think um, we still think in silos. So in, um, in, in care, for CARE Lebanon, we have um, a leadership program for our managers, and the organi organizers are the same organizers who put together the humanitarian leadership master's degree that's yeah, in Australia. It's one of the first in the world. So for me, it was quite of interesting that it was called humanitarian leadership program um, and not aid leadership program. So I think I think what we need to learn is. We, we can't, can't wait to, to, to figure it out. We have to now learn the skills we know will be needed to deal with humanitarian development, urban um, crisis in the future. I think they'll, they'll increase, especially in hot spots like the Middle East. I mean, they will only continue to grow and get more complex. Though so there's certain skills that we'll need to learn around local economic development, around, as Leo was saying, systems thinking, that will change how we completely approach, design, and implement some of these projects, and how we partner. So those kind of skills, if you know how to get them, let me know, because I'm looking to, to enroll in a PhD <laughs> to learn those. But uh, that, that's really what we need. How does social change happen in those complex Socioeconomic change happen in those complex kind of kind of uh, situations. What's the role of uh, you know of religion in in in, in areas where religion is now uh, or or faith is now I would say on the rise according to some of the, you know how do we deal with these things? Those are things that that aren't that aren't aren't there yet. So I would say yeah. So invest. I didn't answer, but trying to clarify that. 
Okay, so you're saying that we need to invest in making sure that agency staff understand these things or explore these issues more and really understand them as part of the, the, the context? I would say in terms of the question being, you know, what do we need to learn if we're children now for the jobs of the future? We need to learn those skills, uh, you know, in a cross-sectional kind of, kind of way. We need to you know, have, have cross-sectional programs or at least have these supplemental programs that people can, can get. So for me, my blessing was I have, I have an MBA, so I understand the private sector. I understand how to design, how to do strategic planning. That, was, that for me is the easy part. For me, the hard part is really social change and, and, and all that stuff and, mm -hmm. and, and how, to, how to work around that. Right. Thank you very much, Daniel. Um, Sikhtar, do you want to yeah, comment just on Just one comment about this, uh, uh, the material requirement actually. Uh, Sometimes actually it is uh, really uh, uh, difficult uh, uh, meeting the requirement because most of the time uh, when you will uh, actually we are uh, developing plan for with the with the sitting with the local community uh, it is always very high ambitious actually so uh, high ambitious plan they are uh, requesting I mean establish this establish this yeah mm -hmm. but uh, the the question is the maintenance of this uh, the this uh, you know. Uh, 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 response center or metros is very difficult because it's not like a one time you will buy something and there is no uh, uh, system of uh, replenishment or maintenance so it is very difficult so this uh, high ambition versus uh, need it is uh, always there is some uh, you can say um, dif difference uh, there is some different mm. yeah so soft support is actually normally sometimes it's not well accepted <laughs> right yeah thank you, thank you. Um, Leah? I think the only one I can, I can touch on is, is Harriet's question as well. I think um, perhaps not necessarily you know, skills that we need to invest in, but, but whole disciplines that we need to bring more of into the sector. I think you know, we, um, we have a lot of uh, sectoral expertise and, and kind of program design expertise, and, and what the urban um, crisis, crisis have shown us is the, the need to um, harness built environment skills, uh, urban planning and so on, and also the, the skills of anthropologists and how important that, that they were to the West African Ebola outbreak, which was so largely urban, um, and to, you know, to harness the, these skills that are um, not part of traditional ways that we think of sector skill bases and bring those in. And, and then all the, yeah, the systems thinking stuff, thinking, thinking differently, recognizing other perspectives, being able to take a step back, um, you know, seeing, um, seeing what's under the surface, looking at root causes, just the ability to, to think outside the box. I think, unfortunately, our skills that we should have been, you know, t teaching our, our younger humanitarian selves and haven't. So we, you know, we can't just teach the next generation now. We all need to kind of, you know, get on board as well. Thanks, Leah. And David? Just, just very briefly. These are really hard questions. <laughs> As I say, is it, so was it Ursh, your name? Excuse me. I, yes. Ursh? I'm so sorry. I, I missed you. Excuse me. Um, in terms of recommendations, we, we sought to do the best we could to gather what we could. I mean, as you're knowing, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of experience of tragic situations, especially con, um, conflict and protracted crises. We, we hope we got what we could. Uh, all I can suggest is take a peek. But of course, no one's even beginning to say this is the, 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 the so what in that, but there's an awful lot of that. And I'm sorry that's such a, a weak answer, but I just wanted to at least say 
something on that front. Um, and there are so many great organizations doing so many impressive things of, of the learning. Um, thank you, Harriet, for what you said, by the way, and thank you for your inputs, especially on the WASH chapter and throughout as well, and being part of the advisory committee on that. Um, my, my colleagues have said what you said, what have been said, and if only we knew. It's the unknown unknowns. It's the Rumsfeldian sort of future. Uh, but I just want to pick up, on I mean, Daniel, you've joined us with an MBA, a background working in you know, um, the private sector, which wasn't long ago was known as the evil crowd we don't talk to. And here you are sort of mainstream, you know, leading from the front on those things. And I think that's the big clue, actually, to have the entrepreneurs doing stuff in cities, because guess what? Cities are surrounded by business and cities function like that to a large part. And I'm just looking out the window here. So, you know, lots of Daniels uh, and Daniellas and other people doing stuff, I think, is the big clue about what we do next and my, my personal sort of hunch and it's not evidence almost no NGOs there'll be small civil society but it's, it's businesses doing an entre entrepreneurship for-profit perhaps model about working in these areas and they're just very briefly touching on Paul at the end who, who timed in I just don't know who knows about security I mean there's a thing about visibility of seeing of rumor um, in a way of course works in non-urban non areas too but there's something something about that too uh, but what we are seeing is, is this breakdown. The groups who are seen as bad are no longer bad, and bad is good. And uh, someone mentioned earlier on talking about gangs and engaging. And we have to. We have no choice. And uh, the, that, that comes out again and again throughout the, the Good Practice Review. And I, please, I, I should not, not, I'm not suggesting for a second security services or anyway in the same group, but I'm saying we're working with different groups all the time. And urban areas are out working with different kinds of people in different, different ways all the way through. And I think that's one of the takeaways of this, of this work. Thank you, David. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up now. But I wanted to thank our excellent panelists, Daniel. Thanks for joining us from Lebanon, Sigdar uh, from Bangladesh, and David and, and Leah here, David from Australia. So I think we had a really interesting discussion. I appreciate all the questions and comments that people made as well. And please continue. Join us outside, those of you in the room, because we have refreshments. And our panelists, at least in the room, are here to, so that you can talk to them further if you weren't able to ask your question or make your comment. So thank you again. And you'll be able to see a video recording of the event tomorrow online on the ODI website. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.